So we're in the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, it's, 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 it's sort of an intense period. Um, it's an intense period. You know, we have a, we have a Gomorrah that says that when, when one comes home from shul uh, Friday night, um, angels follow the person home. It's why we sing Shalom Aleichem. We sing, uh, we, we, we greet the angels in song and everything like that. Um, and uh, the truth is, is that really every day and, and throughout a person's entire life, uh, angels follow them. But, um, but we make a special point of, of, of mentioning it when a person comes home uh, from Shul on Shabbos. And uh, an interesting thing goes on um, in terms of the angels. If they see, bless you, if they see that the house is ready for Shabbos and that it's been prepared for Shabbos, then um, one angel sort of makes a blessing on the home and says, just like that house looks beautiful this Shabbos, so should it be for next Shabbos. And the other angel has to say, Amen. And if the house is just like totally a mess... And um, then the other angel says, just like this house is like totally a mess, this Shabbos, so should it be for next Shabbos. And the other angel has to say amen. So, um, so that deserves a lot of thought and a lot of explanation. But let me just touch on one, one aspect of it, which is from that you see that that when Shabbos comes, a person's house has to be in order. When a great visitor comes, one has to be prepared to greet them in a proper way. Um, there are so many stories, beautiful stories, lots and lots and lots of stories of when great rabbis would come to small towns and everyone in the entire village in the town would come to greet them. And it's even appropriate, you know, a, a, a tzaddik, a Talmud Chacham, is called, um, is called by the name Shabbos, by the way. In fact, there's, a, there's a, um, an account of, of, of a group of people that, that wanted to know really whether the... Why, why food tasted so good on Shabbos? <laughs> and the answer is because Shabbos is actually a spice. Shabbos gets into the food and makes the food taste better. But they wanted to test this out. And so they made the exact same meal in the middle of the week. And they found that it tasted the same. But it tasted the same because the great rabbi was there. And so since the great rabbi is called Shabbos, Shabbos was still there. <laughs> so, so there's this, there's this, this tradition, even if you go and, and see a, a Rebbe, in the middle of the week, you should put on your big day Shabbos, your Shabbos clothes, and you, you, you prepare to meet him because he's Shabbos, so you, it's, it's appropriate to dress for Shabbos when you encounter Shabbos. Yom Kippur is called the Shabbos of Shabbases. If everything that we're saying is true for Shabbos, that one's house has to really be prepared and in order for Shabbos, then what does it mean to be prepared for the Shabbos of Shabbases? And who is the visitor who's coming on the Shabbos of Shabbos? So we know that it's Hashem. But we have many names for Hashem. You know, we have the Yud Kei Vav Kei, we have Elohim, we have Kel, we have Shakai, we have all these different names which don't describe different gods. There's only one God, only one power in the world. But they're describing different aspects of His essence. So... Hashem comes to us on Yom Kippur in the most loving, 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 loving way. But you know, He's also coming garbed in majesty. We say on, Yom, on Rosh Hashanah, HaMelech, HaMelech, the King. And all during the ten days, we don't say, HaKel HaKadosh, during Shemona Esrei, we say, HaMelech HaKadosh. And it's such a strong thing that if you didn't say HaMelech HaKadosh, 
you've got to go back and say Shemona Esrei. And in fact, if you finish Shemona Esrei, and you're unsure whether you said it or not, the assumption is that you didn't say it, and you've got to go back and say it. So this idea of Hashem's malchus, His kingship, so on the one hand, He's coming in the most intimate way. He's coming to forgive us of everything. And yet at the same time, He's garbed in majesty. And you know, mess with the king, basically. So, so there's really like this, you know, there's this very amazing, amazing, amazing dynamic to, to the nature of Hashem's presence. And we're going to get more into it. And what it means that He's coming. And how we have to prepare ourselves for His arrival. So, so the first thing, I think, and this is kind of like a bit of a breakthrough for people at a certain point in their path. I mean, it, it always remains true. But, but there comes a certain point, like I know describing my own spiritual journey and, and talking to people who have been at various stages in their journey, you know, throughout my life, I've noticed a big turning point that takes place with a lot of people, which is you hear like a teaching that you don't understand, and usually at the beginning of a person's involvement in Torah, they'll instinctually go, that's dumb, that's stupid, right? And then if they stay with it and they learn more deeply, if they'll hear a teaching of comparable, incomprehensible, Ability, they'll go, wow, I don't understand that. <laughs> There's a level of humility that kicks in as one realizes how big God actually is. How big God actually is. Now, all of the Parshas leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they're the same every year. And in Parshas Nitzavim, there's a very amazing couple of psukim, which really addresses this aspect of humility. I'm going to read to you, it's, um, it's in Devarim, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, it's, it's chapter 29, I'll start reading from, from verse 17. Perhaps there is among you a man or a woman, or a family or a tribe, whose heart turns away today from being with Hashem, our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations, Perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with gall and wormwood. Okay, now listen to this. This is now Pasuk 18. And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, I guess these, this uh, rebuke, he will bless himself in his heart, saying, Peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit, thereby adding the water upon the thirsty. Now, there are... This is a very hard Pasuk to to translate into English. And um, actually, if you look in the, uh, the Living Torah, Rabbi Ari Kaplan's translation, there's so many different translations for this Pasuk, like putting different words in it. But the dynamic that they're describing, everyone agrees in. And it's really, it's, it's quite interesting. Basically, what it's saying is, you know what? I hear what the Torah is saying, but you know what? It's not going to reach me because I'm above it. That means that when push comes to shove, a person says in their heart of hearts, as Reb Shlomo would say, it's sweet and it's cute, but come on, let's be serious. Right? A person ultimately, or the Torah is warning a person about a very natural phenomena which, which will arrive to a person, which they'll say, that far I don't go. <laughs> you know, it's true, but is it really that true? And since it's really not that true, then I'm basically shielded and protected. I'll engage to the extent that I feel that it's true, and to the extent that I don't think it's true, I am removed and I'm protected. And Hashem doesn't like that at all. At all. And He says that you're going to add the watered upon the thirsty. So what does that mean? 
So I'll cut to the chase. We won't derive it from the words itself, but here's the meaning. That what they'll do is, they'll end up turning unintentional sins in their life into intentional sins. See, there are two... Uh, I'm going to explain it. So there are two, there are two different categories in a person's life. They're the, pers- they're the things that a person does unintentionally, because we're human beings and it happens. And then there are the things that a person does on purpose. Right? The, the things that a person does unintentionally, Hashem has special mercy on that person, especially if they turn to God, and they say, look, I, you know, like, like, you know, you're reaching for your shirt, and your elbow turns on the light switch on Shabbos. Did you mean it? You didn't mean it. Come on. You didn't mean it. So, you know, unintentional things like this are, are, are a separate category. Hashem is very forgiving of those things if you turn to Him. But, but if a person does things intentionally, that takes a little more work in terms of rooting out where that level of defiance came from their heart. That's a question? Yeah. Sometimes a person is going to do it intentionally because of a mitzvah. Can you explain when and how why? Say it again. Someone's not going to do it in a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to do it intentionally, isn't it? To do a sin intentionally? Yes. So when would it be a, a, a mitzvah to do a sin intentionally? I don't know. I'm just asking. No, no, no. Like to do so, a to save a life. Okay, so then, then that's not called a sin. Because the Torah is telling you to save a life on Shabbos. Okay, so, so that, yeah. But in general, we try to avoid the things that we call averas, that, are, that Hashem doesn't want us to do, and to do the things that He asks us to do. So, so now, what, what the Torah is saying is that if a person has the attitude, and this is the point, if the person has the attitude that ultimately they are the ultimate authority, and that they are the ultimate power, and that it's nice to believe in God, because it serves my interest to believe in God, because I'm a nice guy. And as an aspect of me being a nice guy, I also believe in God. But do you hear how, do you hear, do you, do you hear the organizational structure of that? It starts with me, I'm the ultimate reality, and as, you know, I like blue shirts, I like the Mets, I like to believe in God. In other words, these are adornments to myself. They don't reach the core of me. Right? Like, let me put it another way. The Torah, we say it all the time. I was so privileged to learn it from Gedaliel Gerfein. He says, what's the difference between someone who believes in many gods and someone who believes in one God? Someone who believes in many gods says, God is in the trees, God is in the mountain, God is in the, in the fields, right? But someone who believes in one God says, the whole world is inside God. What does that mean? That means that God saturates all of existence and transcends existence. Dimensions beyond even this world. It's not just nature equals God. God fills all of nature. God fills all of nature and then transcends this world in addition. So that means that me as a member of this world, there's not me and then the rest of the world. It's not like all of these ideas are an adornment to me. I'm part of the essence of the whole thing. It permeates through me. So, so what this Pasuk is saying is something very, very, very fundamental. It says that if a person has the attitude that ultimately, ultimately, um, all of these things won't reach my essence because there's essentially me, that I'm the ultimate reality, then even the person's accidental averas will count as intentional averas. So that's... So let me tell you a story that will sort of illustrate this. Someone says... uh, There was basically a, a conversation between a rabbi and someone else, let's say. And um, the person said, look, what's the difference? I don't really 
keep so many of the mitzvahs, and your congregants who are supposedly Torah observant, I happen to know that they also don't keep a lot of the mitzvahs too. So what's the difference between me and them? So it's an interesting question. So what he said back sort of touches on this and explains it in, a, in another way. What he said back was, when, you're right, first of all, he acknowledged the truth of that. <laughs> he says, it's true, they also do things they're not supposed to do. He says, but when they do things that they're not supposed to do, they feel as though they've done something wrong. So that's a very fundamental shift. That's a very fundamental shift. So, so now when Hashem comes on Yom Kippur, He comes to forgive. He comes to forgive. And the question is, how are we greeting the king when he's coming in the fullness of his majesty? And this is like a very, this is a, this is a very big deal. This is a very, very big deal. And, and you see, let me put it to you this way. And um, I wish I could tell you the source for this. It's, it's not my idea, but I, I think it puts it very nicely. One of the themes that we talk about all the time in these talks and is, is the reality of Hashem's presence. And that Hashem is absolutely fills the entire world. Hashem is close even when you don't think He's close. I always talk about how so many of us are guilty of bad math. The bad math we're guilty of is, I don't feel Hashem's presence, therefore He's not close. Or, put another way, Hashem is only as close to me as I feel His presence. It's bad math. Hashem is close whether you feel His presence, whether you don't feel His presence, whether you're feeling spiritual or religious today, whether you're not. He's closer than close all of the time. Okay, so then, how come, even though I'm doing mitzvahs, I don't feel His closeness? So now listen to this. There's, there's spiritual closeness and there's physical closeness. Two totally different categories. Physical closeness and spiritual closeness. And what can it be compared to? Two people who are back to back with each other and facing in different directions are physically close. But they're not looking each other in the eye. They're right next to each other. They're even touching. They're back to back. But you know something? The other person may, not, may as well not even be there. Because they're looking in the other direction. You know, one of the things that it was like, you know, every once in a while you, you, you experience something and then it just feels like, wow, that's a metaphor for all of life. You know, like one time, I'll give you one quick example. One, one time, I mean, this is so easy, what I'm about to say, and so obvious, it's, it's almost going to sound like cheating. Like, don't use that as an example, it's too easy. <laughs> we were looking, I was, with, uh, I was with a rabbi, a close friend, and we were going to a... Uh, we were actually going to go to a class together on one side of the block. And, um, and then we weren't able to get that parking space. And then we turned around and we got a better parking space. <laughs> and I said, that's all of life right there. Looked like it was going bad and it worked out even better. But it happened in literally three seconds. You know what I mean? Usually it's like... Much longer than that. But that's not the example I wanted to give you. <laughs> I, was, I was driving from the airport in New York into the city. And um, I was with someone who was actually, I don't think had ever been to New York before. And there's one stretch of highway. 
you go over this bridge. There's one stretch of highway where you have one of the most magnificent views of the New York City skyline. And it was nighttime, and it was all lit up. I mean, it's the type of stuff that's in movies and on postcards. Incredible, beautiful, like, wow, you know, the metropolis, you know, in all of its glory. And on the other side is like this polluted water and a few smokestacks <laughs> and maybe five two-story buildings. And I remember as we were going across, my eyes were glued to the New York skyline and the person I was with was looking at the smokestack. And I was like, wow, there's all the life right there. So you can be, you can be close to Hashem. We're close to Hashem no matter what. But you can be in a back-to-back relationship. Even while you're doing mitzvahs. But you're back-to-back. So what does it mean to be facing each other? You're just physically as close. Nothing has changed. But now you're relating to Hashem directly. You're using your mitzvahs as an ongoing conversation with God. You're doing your mitzvahs to and for God face to face. Can you imagine? Can you imagine there's someone who is standing back to back with you, right? And you're cooking for them. Okay? And you're making like a gourmet meal. But they're to your back. So they don't see the effort that you're putting in. And then when you turn around and you put the plate on the table, they also turn around. So you put the plate on a table with no one present. Then you turn around again, and you don't see them eating. And then you turn around again, and the plate is empty, but the person's gone. People, so many of us, Maybe all of us at one time or another. Maybe most of us all of the time. (laughs) Sounds like I'm quoting Lincoln, right? Um, (laughs) Are in this type of relationship with God. We're doing mitzvahs, we're serving Him, but we're serving this invisible presence. And it's the deadly word, an abstraction. It's an abstraction as opposed to an actual relationship. The Rambam has ten sections where he talks about tshuva. And the last section, so that's the culmination of the whole thing, talks about love of God. And how a person has to be literally lovesick for God. And thinking about God all of the time. And not only that, not only that, but that he says, you know what we do? You know this whole reward thing? This whole reward thing, you'll do mitzvahs and then you'll get rewards. He says, we tell that to young children. (laughs) He says, when they grow up, then we tell them the real thing. Which is that you do it because it's the truth. You do it because it's the truth. And then whatever happens, happens. Hopefully it's going to be good. Certainly blessings come from mitzvahs. Certainly, that's a thousand percent true. But that's not your... You're so in love with God, it's not even about that. The mitzvah itself is the reward. You know, it says, it says that the reward for a mitzvah is a mitzvah. So there are different ways to understand that. One of them is that when I do a mitzvah, you know how Hashem rewards me? He says, do another. <laughs> I love that. Do another. Do it again. You know, R- Rabbi Green tells a story about he took his son who was very young, to the beach for the first time. And he took them into the water, and like they were standing up to their knees or so, and a, a wave came, and it splashed on him. And then he went, he was just, he broke out in a giant smile, and he said, Abba, do it again. <laughs> you do a mitzvah, Hashem says, do it again. Do it again. That was great. I love that. And that's it. And that's our life. 
That's it. That's our life. And that's the best, 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 best life you could ever, ever have. Because you're absolutely at that point when that's your consciousness, there is nothing else. You know, I heard someone, I wish I could tell you who, the, the, <laughs> it was one of these, um, you know, did, I don't know, this is probably a very dated reference for most of you, but <laughs> there was this joke that sort of stayed with me. It was a running joke on, you ready for this reference? On F Troop. And uh, <laughs> uh, Agarn, <laughs> Agarn, someone would say uh, to Agarn, I think it was, uh, was it Sergeant O'Rourke? Was that his name? He would say, uh, you know, I don't know why everyone says you're dumb. And then two scenes later, he'd say, who says I'm dumb? <laughs> this was one of their big runners. Another one of their big runners. Something, you know, that I've never been able to get out of my head was when they'd give directions to the Indian camp, it was you take a left at the rock that looks like a bear and a right at the bear that looks like a rock. (laughs) But anyway, this is one of those teachings I heard I had a very delayed reaction because it's it's totally in code, but I'm going to, I gave it some thought, so I'm going to, I'm going to work it out for you. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you said it. I don't, I don't know who said it, but it, it got in my head. It's a, it's a good one. Talking about that when you reach this level of love for Hashem and reach this level of, of, of doing it because it's the truth, then, then that's, you're in such a high place at that point. Really, nothing can touch you. Nothing can touch you at that point. And um, so it was a blessing that, that, that someone said which is that he said, I bless you that you should have what you want and that you should want what you need. <laughs> okay, so that, to me, that was advanced calculus. So let me, let me just work out what that means, okay? Let's, let's work backwards. Yeah. He said, I bless you, you should have what you want and that you should want what you need. Okay, so let's, let's figure out what that means. Let's work backwards. That you should want what you need. Wow, okay. You know, there's so many things that I want. But to want what I actually need, boy, you talk about simplifying your life. Oh my goodness. Every three months there's a new iPod Nano that comes out. You know? And it's even more colors. <laughs> And these are the good colors. And you don't want to be seen with last year's shade of purple. Because that would make you a loser, man. You know? You know, yeah, no, yours is nice. It's great. Mine is just a little more rectilinear. Oh, yeah, but I'm sure yours works great. You know, so... Um, so... So you should want what you need. Should want what you need. In other words, simplify your life. Simplify your life. Want what you need. And then, what's the first part of that bracha? You should have what you want. In other words, you should have what you need. But that actually should be enough for you. That should actually be the, the answer to your prayer. You know, I wanted to give a talk. I came up with a title that I got very excited about, which is Adventures in Consciousness. <laughs> and um, basically, one point that I wanted to say, um, and we talked about it at some point here, which is that Hashem is actually answering your prayers all of the time. All of the time. And by all the time, I mean like 99% of the time. But you know what the problem is? Is that Hashem is answering your prayers, but you're not praying for those things. So let me give you an example. Because this, like, you want your mind to expand. 
I've, I've tried this. You know, I always like those um, cooking shows that say, all recipes have been tried at home first. You know what I mean? So I've tried this, and I can tell you, it's really mind-expanding. Let's say you want to go to Ralph's and get some milk. Okay? So, first you pray, Hashem, please let me get to Ralph's. Then you get to Rouse. Thank you, God, for answering my prayer. Then you walk into Ralph's, you say, please, God, let there be milk at Ralph's. (laughs) (laughs) Then you walk to the milk aisle, and you see there's milk. Hashem answered your prayer. And the truth is, the truth is, is that I'm not, this is real. This is actually real. The problem is, is that we're not, Hashem is answering our prayers all the time, but we're not praying for these things. So we're not seeing that our prayers are being answered constantly. Constantly. Um, I read something a long time ago. Rav Nussin wrote that he had been reprimanded by Rabbi Nachman because he asked for something and it didn't specify what, but the context was it seemed like a pretty small thing that he had asked for. Maybe he asked him to pass a book. I, I don't know. I'm filling in that detail. I don't know. But it didn't seem to be like a giant request. And Rabbi Nachman reprimanded him because he made a request before he had prayed to God for it. And Rabbi Nachman said that that's how animals receive things. To get something without having prayed for it first. And my understanding of this teaching was that there was nothing too small. That it wasn't worthy of praying for first before you received it. I heard from... Reb Shlomo, he said that the greatest Kiddush Hashem, the greatest sanctification of Hashem's name that a person can make, he says, intuitively we all feel how far, how distant Hashem is to us. The greatest Kiddush Hashem a person can make is to, is to show a person how close Hashem actually is to them. Because I think, you know, I think that... The greatest Kiddush Hashem sanctification a person can make is to show a person how close Hashem is to them. By understanding that... To, to, understand, to understand that things don't just happen. That everything is being guided that everything is actually being guided. You see, one of the... I think that... um, I think that loneliness and a sense of abandonment are probably the most toxic emotions for a person's spirituality. In fact, the Slonimer Rebbe says that the way Amalek works... Amalek is that great enemy of the Jewish people, and it's not just it's not just a, a people, it's a it's a it's a spiritual force, is to show a person or to tell a person that he's alone. This is the this is the greatest damage that that a person can experience spiritually, the sense of being alone. Um, because Hashem is with us always. If a person feels alone, then the fundamental truth of existence has been negated, which is Hashem's presence and His closeness. The fundamental truth of existence has been negated when a person experiences loneliness. So it has to be resisted with, with, with every bit of strength. With every bit of strength. You know, it says in the Gomorrah that if a person is, um, if the Sahara, the evil inclination is attacking a person, the person should drag the Sahara to the base Medrash. 
So the simple way of understanding that is, you know, you need like some vitamin T, right? At that moment, you need like, you need some Torah, like fast. But I want to say a different shot. If the Yetzirah is attacking, that means on some level a person feels that they're alone, that they're not standing before Hashem, that Hashem isn't with them, that Hashem isn't embracing them at that moment. Go to a base medrash. Go and be around other people. Feel the presence of the community. Feel the presence of other people. See that you aren't alone. Then it will break the lie of the eight Sahara. And you'll be able to have the strength to go on. So... So Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is really interesting. And I got to say, when I'm going to be very honest, when I heard this teaching for the first time, I loved it and I hated it. I loved it because it just like, as though I need another reason to love Judaism and Torah. Well, this was it. This was another reason to love Judaism and Torah, because you'll feel the rightness of it as soon as I tell you. You probably know it anyway, but you'll feel the rightness of it right away. I hated it because it requires so much extra work. And uh, it's actually a Mishnah. It's not, I'll, I'll give you the source for it. It's in Gomorrah Yuma. It's on, uh, it's on Pehe Amid Bez. It's in the Mishnah. It says, for sins between man and God, Yom Kippur atones. So we're talking about, I broke Shabbos, I, uh, I ate treif, um, you know, things like that. Yom Kippur is great for that. But for sins between a person and his fellow human being, Yom Kippur does not atone until he appeases his fellow. If you did someone dirty, you've got to apologize to them. Yom Kippur does not work for that level of infraction. And like I say, I, when I heard that teaching, I loved it and I hated it. I loved it because you see the rightness of it. You see the rightness of it. How would it be if we had a religion where I could steal from you and I can speak Lushan Hara and ruin your reputation? And then I pray and I cry in Yom Kippur and, uh, and you know what? You're still angry at me? Hey, that's your problem. <laughs> you know? Does that sound like Judaism? Could that ever be right? And the answer is, it isn't right, and we say it isn't right. Go ahead. Yeah, in Hara, you're not supposed to ask for forgiveness, actually, from another person. Okay, so there are different opinions about it. There, there are different opinions about it. In fact, not, not only are there different opinions, but there's even an opinion that you're supposed to tell the person what you said about them. Okay? Now, that's a very controversial thing, because it's sort of like, here you are, here you are, here you are trying to apologize to them, and it's sort of like, listen, I'm really sorry, I, you know what I called you? <laughs> and the person's like, what? <laughs> it's, as, as we say, it's it, 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 it requires deeper investigation. But, but, Lushan Hara actually does involve going up to a person. The question is whether you tell them what you said or not. That, that seems to be the, the disagreement on it, not whether you have to apologize to them. You, you do. Go ahead. One other complication, yeah. and that is that it's not just the person you told, it's all the other people that it's spread out to. Right. So the Torah says you can't possibly reach all those people. Right. That, that, that's what he might be referring to, is that even though you apologize to that person, it still doesn't solve the total problem. Yeah, you know, the, 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 there's a famous story. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. Actually, you know, Madonna wrote a, wrote a, put it in a, in a, in a children's book form, and, and she did a beautiful job. Uh, 
publicizing this uh, story, which is that I think it's said in the name of the Chovetz Chaim that a person um, a person wanted to know how they could um, fix some lashon hara that they had said, and they were told to go to the top of a hill and to take a a pillow full of feathers and to break it open and um, and then to go back to the rabbi. So the person did it and they, and they went back to the rabbi and they didn't understand. It seemed to be a very odd way to atone for something. And the rabbi then said, now go and gather up all the feathers. And the person says, but they've blown in every single direction. How can I find all of the feathers? And the rabbi said, well, you know, this is, this is the point. Lashon Hara spreads. Spreads, it spreads, it spreads, it spreads. <clears throat> On that subject, I want to just just share with you a, a level. And, um, you know, a, a, a couple of levels relating to, to this. If, if you have a problem, and this is, this is kind of like a life-saving bit of advice, okay? If you have a problem with another person, and you need to speak about it, which is a good thing to do. If you have a problem and you can't work it out yourself, you should speak about it with another person. Um, and, uh, and so imagine I have a problem with, uh, with this person, and I go up to another person and I say, listen, he did this to me, and he did that to me, and then I ended up saying this, and he took it, then I meant that. Okay, hopefully that other person is on the level that they can make peace or they can give you some insight. But before you do it, I beg you, say the following thing. Please help me make peace with this person. It will give an entire different context to the conversation that you're having with the peacemaker. In one way, it can really come out as Lushan Hara. This person said this, and this person did that, and you know that person's history. You know what they did with that other person, right? No, actually, I didn't know that. But, if you say, please help me make peace with this other person, or I need, I want to make peace with this other person, then all of a sudden, everything is it's a different conversation that you're having. And in your heart, you may have been coming because you wanted peace anyway, but it's important to speak it out. It's important to preface your comments and to speak it out initially. It will change the entire nature of the conversation. Okay, that's number one. Number two, I want to offer the following, which is, you know something? Imagine again the spread of the feathers. Okay? They're blowing in every which direction. Now, there's one level, and sometimes this level is necessary to, for healing purposes, where you say to another person, you know something, um, oh man, you know what happened at work today? This guy did this, and everything like that, but, um, but I'm okay about it. Okay, I'm talking about a, a certain level of wrong where you've more or less come to peace with it already on your own. Okay, that's this category. But you know what? If you've already kind of come to peace with it more or less, how about not saying it at all? Because do you see how the flow of negativity can just stop with you? I'm saying in a situation where you're more or less pretty good with it. And if it stops with you, then all of a sudden that negative energy that entered into the world between the two of you has been contained. As opposed to, you say it to that other person, and I'll tell you just while we're on the subject, one of my great pet peeves, maybe you know people who say this, I really... You say to someone, listen, I'm telling you, but don't say it to anyone else. And the person says, 
Who am I going to tell? <laughs> hey. You know, <laughs> who am I going to tell that already tells me? You know, the person means the opposite. I'm not going to tell anyone. But to my ears, maybe this is just me, who am I going to tell means, do you know how often I tell people so many things? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I hear when the person says, who am I going to tell? They mean it in a good way. Nothing against the person. They mean it in a good way. But do you hear the, do you hear the beauty of just letting it stop with you? If you can do that. If you're at peace enough to, to be able to do that. And then it ends. And then the negativity is contained. So I just want to return for one moment to this, to this notion of, to this notion of, uh, loneliness. Point of information? Yeah. In business, somebody does you wrong. You've known, you find, come to find out they've done another person wrong in a similar way. And that they're apt to do something wrong in a similar way to somebody else. In such a situation, what are the laws of question? Okay, these are very technical things, but I can tell you that when it comes to matters of shaduchim, of, you know, where there's uh, single people in the community who are inquiring about another person, and when it comes to matters of business partnerships, I'm thinking of getting into business with this person, these two categories have different sets of halachas than normal Lashon Hara, than the the normal laws. In other words, and you have to learn the laws, I'm not giving you a blank check here, so don't think that I am. There are very detailed laws. However, the general principle is you are allowed to share more information than you normally would in a normal conversation about that person. Because if a person is a known thief, say or disreputable in business, then, then it's, it would be dishonest and not halachic to say, oh, he's the greatest guy. And then what you've done is essentially created a situation where someone can get ripped off again. But again, the halachas are very, very, very detailed. You have to know exactly how to say it and what to say and all the rest. You have to be careful not to repeat rumors that you don't really know are true. Well, again, again, these are... See, one of the glories of Judaism and, and, and the Torah is no other religion in the world has such detailed laws about what, what, what Lashon Hara is. You know? What you can say, the idea of kosher speech and even kosher money. You know, I once had a situation with someone where we had a business disagreement. And, you know, I, I really... Anyway, I ended up with a very, very small amount of money. Um, but we had gone through a rabbi, and all right, whatever, I, I did a very poor job in terms of explaining my side, and whatever it is. But I'll tell you one consolation that I had about that small chunk of money that I had. I said to myself this a dozen times, that money was so kosher I could eat it. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You know, I mean, and there was something very beautiful to me about that, you know? So what I'm trying to say is, is that these situations are very specific. So you can't, don't, don't just, you, you have to have an actual situation in mind when you, when you start asking about the halakhas of these things. Okay? Um, but again, I just want to return to this one point about loneliness for, for a moment. Because, because, you know, you know, when Chava, when Eve ate from the tree, And the snake got her. 
You know, they asked the question, where was Adam? Right? There were only two people in the world. It seems like, where was, where was Adam? And it says he was out meditating. <laughs> she was all alone. She was all alone when, uh, when the snake got her. You know, the snake comes to us when we're alone. And, uh, and um, makes us feel like it's just us and that God's not even there. But you know what the biggest joke is? How am I here if God isn't here? <laughs> you see, the, uh, the Gomorrah makes a comparison between the soul and the human body and God and the world. Listen to this fundamental difference, okay? When, after 120, we should all live long, when the soul leaves a person, right? The soul, the body remains, right? The body just lays there. The soul ascends. If God were to leave the world, the entire world would disappear. Imagine a room with no windows and the doors closed, and you flick off the light. <laughs> Gone. If God were to disappear, the world would disappear. The universe would disappear. I feel alone right now. Okay, let's do some good math right now. Let's see, I exist. Okay, that means for sure God exists. <laughs> that means I'm not alone. That's pretty straightforward. And since God is everywhere, that means that I'm really not alone. So now let me just open up my heart to the fact that God is here right now. So I want to talk about our technological age right now, because I think that one of the, sort of like a zeitgeist thing, one of the things that we're particularly vulnerable to spiritually is this feeling of loneliness. And I feel as though all of the technological advancements that have gone on before our eyes have increased our sense of aloneness. And by that, what I mean is, is that we've, we've been sort of falsely empowered. I mean, we've been empowered for real. But we've also been falsely, we've been empowered to think that we can do it all without God. Because look at, look what I can do. I can flick on the internet. I can do it from my handheld. I can find out, you know, not just what year the Council of Trent was, but who attended it. <laughs> right now. Right here. Look how powerful I am. But then the subconscious message is, is I just did that all by myself. Where did God go? <laughs> you know, we can do so much on our own right now. Okay, so so you know, the truth is I want to keep on talking, but it's it's late and I don't want to hold you hostage. So so uh I mean it's kind of impossible just to to address the subject of heading into Yom Kippur. So let me just return back to what I started with. Just this notion that if you have to prepare for Shabbos because a very special guest is coming to your home, how do you prepare for the Shabbos of Shabbases? And to not to think that somehow, oh, you know what? It's true to the extent that I believe it. Don't, don't do that to yourself. Don't, don't victimize yourself in that way. It's true, period. It's all true. It's all true, period. And then, God willing, I should be able to be on the level to, to be up to the truth of it all. And because I'm a human being, I'm going to fail in many, many different categories. But, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll approach it from my sense of my own humanity. 
and, and, and just try my best and reach out to God. And, and, to take, and to take this visitation with the utmost seriousness. You know, there are two psukim, we talked about this on Rosh Hashanah a little bit, the Gomorrah in Rosh Hashanah says that there's a, a bit of a contradiction between these two psukim. The first one is from Yishiahu, and it says, Seek out God when He is found. Call to Him when He is near. So that makes it sound like there's certain times when I can call out to God. But then in Devarim it says, For which is a great nation that has Hashem so near to it as God our Lord, whenever we call to Him? So that sounds like God is constantly there whenever we call to Him. It's, so what does it mean? Special times? All the time? Sounds like a little bit of a contradiction. So the Gomorrah answers, this idea, call out to Him when He is near, that's these ten days, right now. The other category is when we come together as a community. But the idea that He's so present right now, you know, my good friend Ronnie said, you know how everyone says, the king is in the fields, right? So Rani says, the field is in the king. <laughs> the field is in the king. You know, we're right there, right now. And Rabbi Shapiro makes this amazing thing. He says that, that since whenever we call out right now, during these days, Hashem is really super available, that's normally just the provenance of a community, that means right now every single individual has the status of an entire community, of a whole world. So, you've got a lot of leverage right now. You've got a lot of leverage. Be face to face. Be face to face. Don't be back to back. Be face to face. And you know, if you don't know what to say, you know, every once in a while I hear these stories, they're very common. I never went through it in my own life. But probably there are people even in this room who have been through it, you know? Which is, oh yeah, I just saw my father for the first time in like 12 years. You know? I mean, I hear stories like this. I've heard stories like this throughout my life. And, you know, obviously there's a desire for the two of the people to get together on some level. Maybe... On one side, there's more of a desire than from the other side. But I always wonder, what are those conversations? And it makes me want to cry. It makes me want to cry. Don't be back-to-back with God. And if you don't know what to say, because you've been back-to-back like most of us, for the whole year, or maybe for your whole life, start with, start with hello. Start with talking to God like Rebbe Nachman says. Talk to him like, talk to him like you're talking to another person, and just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and then slowly, 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 you're going to realize a few things. One, the distance isn't as great as you thought it was. Two, you haven't been apart as long as you thought you were apart. And whatever that apartness was, you were even so close during that apartness. You know? And then the ice will begin to melt. And don't expect it to happen all at once. But you know what? It's too central. It's too central not to try. No one's above this. No one's above this. No one's above this. It's not fair to you not to try. Okay, listen, I want to wish you all the best, 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 best year. And a year of closeness and a year of loving truth and a year of just having what you want (laughs) and wanting what you need and not being thrown by the little things. Not being thrown by the little things. And you know, one of my favorite, one of my, you know, we eat symbolic foods. 
on Rosh Hashanah. One of them is that you, you have a little meat from the fish head, which might sound kind of gross, but it tastes the same as the rest of the fish and the rest of the body, but it's coming from the head. And you say, please Hashem, let me be like the head and not the tail. And there are many levels to that, but I'll, I'll share with you one level, which is, you know, if I'm the tail, I'm reacting all the time. He said what? She did what? They did what? And I'm always a step behind or five steps behind and I'm always trying to catch up. And it's like, why is he doing that to me? Or why is she doing that to me? Or don't they know who I am? But you know something? If you're the head and not the tail, you're the one who's doing (laughs) You're not reacting all the time to the people who are doing. Because you know what? You're too busy doing and accomplishing. Accomplish, do, resolve, succeed.